Hello, beautiful people. You are listening to KPOO San Francisco 89.5 and streaming on the World Wide Web at kpoo.com. Slavery is back. In fact, it was never abolished. The 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution abolished slavery, except in prison. At the current rate of incarceration, by the year 2010, the majority of all African-American men between 18 and 40 will be in prison. The state as their captor. It's going to take people who are willing to fight, not people who want to negotiate with the enemy. Setting of the tone for uh, Prison Focus Radio. We are here. I am your host, Nube Brown. And again, I want to welcome you uh, this morning and uh, say thank you for sharing your space and time with me. I want to give a big shout out always with revolutionary love and solidarity to our loved ones, family and community members behind the walls, those that have returned to us and your families and loved ones as well. Um, so happy to be struggling with you and working with you collaboratively. And uh, all right, so we have a good show today. Uh, we're going to have to go ahead and get started, so I won't be speaking too much this morning. We are going to get started with Kwame Shakur. He is a new African revolutionary nationalist and currently a political prisoner in um in Indiana. So uh, without any further ado, here we go. Well, thank you for joining us. I have Kwame Shakur with me this morning. Um, so Kwame, I wanted to ask you to 
a lot of people that are listening may not know who you are, even though they may be, um, some people are, are new, uh, may not be reading the, the SF Bayview, where we know um, you've uh, written quite a few articles. And so I would love for you to introduce yourself to the people, give a little background on who you are, um, you know, what you're doing. And I would love for you to talk about um, your hip hop uh, rap work. That would be great. I am the co-founder and chairman of the New African Liberation Collective, as well as the national spokesperson for Prison Lives Matter. And, um, I became a citizen of the Republic of New Africa in 2015 when I proclaimed my nationality to the New African Nation. And when I came into the movement, I noticed that there was a disarray of organizations within the overall movement which we had all these organizations and individuals who were splinter groups were all pushing for the same thing, believing in the same ideology, that there was no cohesive body of leadership for a national strategy. So myself and my co-founder, Shaka Shakur, we co-founded the NALC as a cadre organization to develop unity amongst all the leading formations within the new African independence movement so that we could galvanize the overall momentum within the new African independence movement. And um, long doing that work is when I was uh, approached by members of the Black Guerrilla Army and they wanted me to create a platform for Prison Life Matter so that we could um, create that same type of infrastructure within the prison movement. So for the past four years, that's all I've been doing, just networking all around the country, inside and out, with the top leaders in the movement trying to create unity across the nation. Okay, fantastic. Will you um, uh, say again uh, what the NALC is? It's a yeah, the NALC is the New African Liberation Collective. And any individual or organization that's a part of the New African Nation and is fighting for our independence and self-determination is a part of the new African independence movement. So what the NALC does is we develop cadre because that's what's lacking in the overall movement. The cadre is different than just your average comrade. A cadre is a professional revolutionary who has the capability to educate and train others and lead a vanguard party within the movement and is capable of creating programs and political education groups and really developing a clear-cut political line for other organizations to follow within the movement. Okay, fantastic. Thank you. And I want to ask you a little bit more about that. But before that, you started off by saying um, you started off by saying that you you claimed, if I heard it correctly, you claimed your identity um, around in 2015 as a new African. It, did I hear that correctly? And if I did or didn't, would you be willing just to uh, talk a little bit more about that, about that process? Yeah, in 2015, I proclaimed my nationality as a new African, which all around the world, the human race is made of, of nations and people's nationalities. Like, there's no such thing as black or white. Like, black and white was created in order to create race and class groups that are inferior to the upper ruling class. Like, by creating these race groups that made it easier for them to break down nations and only have a, a white group and a so-called black group in this country because with the capitalists, it would be much harder for them to colonize dozens of national identities within this nation. You know what I'm saying? So we understand that the first thing that we have to do is proclaim our nationality. So in 1968, over 500 black nationalists met in Detroit and we formed a provisional government of the Republic of New Africa. And we were given a declaration of independence, a creed, and a new African constitution. And by international law, this makes us a legitimate sovereign nation. That the United States refuses to honor us as a sovereign nation because they would lose billions of dollars 
if we were able to become a truly independent nation that was self-sufficient politically and economically. Oh, yeah. The oppressor doesn't want that. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you so, so much for that. Can I ask you, um, so you claimed your identity then. What can I, would you be willing to go back even a little farther about where your level of consciousness was before that claiming of your new African identity and um, who might have been influential in your life that uh, might have helped you to uh, bring you to claiming your new identity? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, we can go all the way back to when I was four or five years old. My grandpa was one of the leading revolutionaries in my city of Terre Haute, Indiana, going all the way back to the 60s. And in the 1970s, him and his comrades created a liberation center in my community called the Heights Center. And um, all my entire life, my dad made sure that I knew who my grandpa was, the sacrifices that he had made for our community. He started having armed confrontations with the Klan when they was coming after our family for the things that he was doing in the community. And then at that same time, at four or five years old, when my dad introduced me to Brother Malcolm X. So I would say majority of my life, I was socially conscious, but I wasn't politically conscious, and I didn't have a concept of nation and nationality or class struggle. So in 2015, when I was held at um, Pennington Correctional Facility, is when I ran into Comrade Shaka Shakur and Shaka in a leading figure within the new African independence movement since the early 90s. And when he seen the work that I was already doing in the camp, he gave me a copy of Comrade Sanika Shakur's book, Stand Up, Struggle For. And this book actually introduced me to the core issues of our oppression in terms of being oppressed as a nation and a class. And uh, it really gave me a whole perspective on being a colonized New African within this oppressive nation. And it took away the whole race concept because a lot of us, when we're not conscious to a higher level, we're still looking at everything in terms of race, that we're only being oppressed because we're black in white America, when that's not the case, you know what I'm saying? So it just mm-hmm. destroyed the whole plurality of race for me and introduced me to dialectical and historical materialism. Fantastic. Would you be willing to, um, did you name your grandfather and did you want to say his name? Yeah, my grandfather's name was Robert Joyner. And, um, he was a uh, vice chairman of the Height Center and his formation at the time. And uh, right now, I'm trying to carry on that work that he did by NALC. We're fighting to regain access and ownership to the Height Center that's now known as the Booker T. Washington Community Center because in recent years it's been gentrified by the city and they're no longer allowing new African leaders to implement our programs or the Feed the People programs or have the library like my grandfather and his comrades did and they're trying to utilize it for um, city use and for public school access. So that's been the main thing that I've been using to agitate, educate, organize uh, the Terre Haute community around so that they can get behind us and really see that we're trying to carry on that work that my grandfather and his people did. Wow, that, that pattern of, um, of um, the oppressor, colonizer, um, like you said, either gentrifying, taking over, co-opting um, all the efforts and work that uh, the black community, the new African community uh, puts together is a, such a devastating uh, uh, pattern that uh, we see, you know, happening even even today. So I really appreciate appreciate your work. Is your grandfather still alive, Kwame? No, no, he passed away in '96. Okay, and um, were you um, uh, were you quote free 
during that time at that time? Yeah, I was only six years old then. <laughs> okay, you're okay. <laughs> you do sound yeah. so young, and I guess I want to. I want you. You're so wise, um, but um, I understand that you are young. Me ask how old you are. Yeah, I'm 30 years old. Yeah, my God, you are so young. And may I ask how long you've been you've been caged? Yeah, I've been held captive for nine and a half years. Okay. Um, do you have a parole date in front of you? Uh, right now, I currently have a, a sentence of 110 years to 55. I'm sorry. Did you just say that you have 110 years plus 55? No, 110, and with good behavior, I could do 55 of it. I see. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, well, that's that's egregious. That's Okay. Um, all right. Um, did you want to say anything about that? Yeah. Um, with that case, I was railroaded in the all-European town, all-white town outside of my city of Terre Haute. And the police raided my father's house. It was over three dozen SWAT team, U.S. Marshals, Indiana State Police. They held up with a battering ram tank and all that, and uh, they raided our house illegally without a warrant. They didn't have a warrant till almost three something. They raided the house a little before two o'clock, and uh, I was taken downtown to the Terre Haute Police Department where I was interrogated for over 11 hours, and uh, I should have been let go. They didn't have any sufficient evidence to hold me, but they had got a judge to sign off on a bogus warrant to hold me in the Terre Haute jail on a probation violation that my probation officer had no knowledge of. So for 33 days, I was held in Terre Haute jail until they could come up with enough so-called evidence or witness coercion to come with these two murder charges and take me to this um, all-white town outside of Terre Haute. So once I got there, I'm the only new African in the jail. In the entire town, I believe there's only one new African in this whole town. So um, the first six months, they had the death penalty on the table, and my lawyer was able to get that off, but they came and filed life without parole on me. But the life without parole was filed after my ominous date. And what the ominous date is is that after this date, the state is no longer allowed to bring any charges pertaining to this case. The life without parole is a charge. So... I was forced to find an open plea to get to life without parole off of me, which is what happens to a large majority of us within this country. I think the percentage of cases that take pleas is 95%. That doesn't mean that we're guilty, but the plea bargain system is so coercive in the United States that they come with these hard sentences and say, well, you can either get this or we'll give you this amount of numbers that you can take. So I signed an open 130, meaning I could get anything from 45 years to 130, and they ended up giving me 110. But well, after the ominous day, if they wouldn't have erroneously did that, I would have never been forced to sign a plea, and I would have went ahead and tried. Okay. Uh, oof. Boy. All right, so... I am I assuming you are also then acting as a jailhouse lawyer? No, I, would, I wouldn't no. say that. I'm just now getting into that. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, um, listen. I mean, you 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 sound so strong and and up and positive. Um, I I I, I want to honor that and align myself with you on that, um, but also hold the space that. Um, this is just an egregious injustice um, that you are facing. And like you said, um, uh, such a high percentage of uh, new Africans and other uh, uh, people of color and poor people are, are, are facing these kinds of, really, this is just a genocidal sentence. How do you feel about uh, kind of taking a little bit Different direction. You have one minute remaining. Oh, we have one minute. Okay. 
let's do this. I would love for you to call back and I would love for you to come back and uh, talk with us about, uh, um, you know, the, the, the hip hop work that you're doing. How does that sound? Yeah. Yeah. That's good. I'm sorry you guys are back. All right. If you are just tuning in, this is Prison Focus Radio, and I am your host, Nube Brown. I have been in conversation with Kwame Shakur. That was our first part. We are now going to get started with the second part of the conversation that includes Malik Washington and Kwame. I started off the second part asking Kwame about uh, the music that he is doing. I wanted to ask you, Kwame, to talk about the um, the music that you do. The, and and do you do you call it hip hop? Is that is that what you would label it as? No, I would say my my lane is more what we used to call back in the day reality rap or gangster rap. Although it is a genre of hip hop, but that's more of what I focus on is reality rap of my real life experiences and what I see every day growing up in the hood and everything that I've been through. Okay, fantastic. Um, I, so would you be willing to, you know, talk more about that? How you, how you got started in that? Is that something that, that you were doing, um, be before they, uh, caught and captured you or is that thing that took place, uh, when you were in? No, I was I was on it before I got locked up, but just being out there in the streets and being caught up in the lumping criminal mentality, it always took a back seat. But um, music has always been a major part of my life, going back to around that same um, age bracket of four or five years old, when my dad introduced me to Tupac and Scarface. You know, it's just always been a major factor in my life. But um, once I got captured, I was able to really sit down and focus in the eyes and experiences that I went through with facing the death penalty and having life without parole on me. Um, it was just all translated into my music. And um, I found that music is another way for me to resist my captors because it's something that they don't want me to do. Just like the Bayview paper gives me an opportunity to have a voice so does the music. I'm able to put my story and my words onto the beat and let the people hear my struggle and hear my story. Beautiful. And that's it's, it's so important, I think, to have access, another access um, uh, to this teaching um, and to this uh, self-empowerment, uh, for especially for the youth. Um, and then really for, for any of us is, do you have any recorded that we would be able to hear, um, on, on YouTube or, um, anything like that? Yeah, my stuff's available on all major streaming platforms as well as on YouTube. On YouTube, you can, uh, search my YouTube channel, Diamond Cut ENT. Or if you're looking for it on any streaming services, you just search Little Beans. L-I-L-B-E-A-N-S. Okay, fantastic, fantastic. We will definitely um, uh, encourage people to listen and, and look for that um, that work for sure. Um, and, of course, we will do, you know, direct people to the SF Bayview so they can read some of your amazing articles as well. Uh, Kwame? I do have uh, Malik here, and I would love for him to be able to uh, talk with you further. Um, he's got some questions for you, and, and I want to uh, just thank you so much for the amazing work that you are doing and what you've, you've shared with me. Um, I may get back on the phone depending on how things go, but I'm going to uh, send it over to to Malik if that works for you. All right. Come have a week. What's happening? Greetings, brother. What's going on, Kwame? Revolutionary greetings. All power to the people. Um, Kwame, I have a couple specific questions that I want to um, send your way, and um, I want you to answer them um, as best you can. Which, And I'm asking these questions specifically to you because I believe that you have intimate knowledge about 
certain information that will actually help educate the people about the movement in general. So the first thing I want to ask you is what do you believe is the national strategy that will push forward unification between all new African formations and push forward the abolition movement? So what I'm asking you is I want you to lay out the strategy of how you think that we can unify all new African formations throughout the United States and push forward the abolition movement in America. Absolutely. So in terms of the new African and black liberation movement, uh, my political advisor and mentor, Jaleel Munkikin, put together a program back in the 90s called Fulminant which stands for the Front for the Liberation of the New African Nation. And in it, he lays out a national strategy with 10 programs for decolonization. So when I formed NALC, I hadn't yet read this material, and I was just pushing NALC as the front to get out of the new African formations that are in leading positions around the country and behind the wall to get on board so that we could unify that leadership to push this forward. And that's when Comrade Shaka Shakur... The NALC is the New African Liberation Cabinet, correct? No, Liberation Collective. Thank you. New African Liberation Collective, NALC. Okay, I apologize for interrupting you. Go ahead, bro. So Comrade Shaka Shakur was like, you know what you're calling for and the things that you're trying to put down have been proposed by the elder comrade Jalil. You should get your hands on 49 and read that handbook and the national strategy. And once I got it, from everything that I've studied from our material from the 60s to now, this is the most concrete program and national strategy for new Africans in North America in this day and age. Because what we gotta realize when we're doing this study and we're trying to build a movement is that you can't read things that was put down in the 60s or the 70s or something from a revolution or front in Latin America or China or Africa. Although we can take things from that, we have to focus on the geographics and the time of where we're at and able to implement that. So with Lebanon, we have these programs and we're asking each formation to take one of the 10 programs away that they feel themselves or their organization can best see to it. And what this front does is the same way that the oppressor nation and the government and Trump has a cabinet, he has a secretary of defense, somebody for education, somebody for the agriculture and the economics. That's the same thing we have to have within the movement. You have to have the leading formations creating a national strategy so that we can implement these programs into the communities to start meeting the immediate needs of the people. Can you can you tell me about at least one of the programs that you feel means the most that will actually bolster and strengthen the black community in America? Can you mention one of them programs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first one that yeah, we're trying to put forth in my city of Terre Haute, Indiana, is the New African Student Alliance. And that's us going on to the campuses and creating these student unions and bodies with ones that are already involved in the African Student Union or the Black Student Union and getting political education groups going on campuses and cadre development programs that will allow these students to get involved with the work that we're doing in the community while also raising their consciousness to a higher level so they understand national oppression and class struggle within a capitalist system and nation. Because right now with the social climate, we have so many college students that are becoming active within the movement. We want to make sure that we can get on board and plant these seeds so they can develop revolutionary mentalities instead of getting swept up in the more reactionary reformist elements because right now the college students are going to be the ones of that age group that can really lead this movement and take off. 
like in this in 2020 in North America, although we focused on the working class individuals and the proletariat, they're not going to be the ones who rise up and lead this movement now because majority of the working class has developed a bourgeois or lower middle class mentality and got caught in the rhetoric with, um, you know what I'm saying, with the Trumps and the Obamas. You never hear them speaking about the lower class. When they say middle class and the things that they're describing, it's actually the lower class people that has made the people develop this mentality that they're in middle class. So we got to get these people to commit class suicide and become one with the lower working class people again. But I see that being a whole nother phase. So right now we got to focus on the college students and ones that are in the streets with these street organizations. Okay, I understand. So basically it's an investment in our future because the youth are our future, so I get that. One thing, since we're talking about youth and um, developing education, political education programs with the youth, I want to wrap this up by asking you something. What impact has you, the mentorship, how have you benefited from the mentorship of our brother, Jaleel Mutakin? How much of an impact has he had on you as a man and as a political revolutionary? Oh, man, it's, uh, I mean, it, it took me to a whole nother level, you know what I'm saying? Because I, it's one thing when you read these books and you attain the knowledge, but it's another thing to know how to implement that theory and that knowledge into political action and really make it happen, you know what I'm saying? That's why there's been so few people over the generations who've been able to really implement these programs into the community and to galvanize the new African independence movement or the prison movement. And what you really did was just that the last two people of family that I held in Terre Haute was because of his mentorship. When we're talking about establishing Florinine and getting this national strategy into place, his guidance of how to implement these things into action by putting these people assemblies together and actually assembling all the people from the press committee and having me bring these national leaders from around the country to my city to speak to the people. I mean, that also allowed them to go back to their cities and implement these programs in a press community as well. Like. All right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap my I'm gonna wrap those that that basically wraps my my questions up. I'm gonna pass this back to my um, fiance Nube Brown, host of Prison Focus Radio. And one last day, if you could say something, maybe for 30 seconds, if you could say something to the people about Jalil Mutakin and whether how they should support him, his freedom, and his transition back to free society. What would you say to the people? First, if you don't know who this brother is, I highly urge you to look him up right now so you can understand who and what he is to our people and to the world. And for me to put it into words so that you can understand who this brother is to me and how important he is, to me this is the closest thing we have in this day and age in North America to a Malcolm X or a Nelson Mandela. His brother's been held captive for 50 years, repeatedly denied parole, and now he's up for the chance. He was just granted parole, and he should be coming home this month on October 20th. And um, it's just important that everything that he's put down over the years is critical that we get behind it and we push that and help see that vision through because the things that he's laid out is for our people and it's for the betterment of humanity. All right. I want to thank you, um, Kwame, for sharing those thoughts with me. And I just want to continue to send out revolutionary love and my Clint Fitch salute to you and all your other comrades trapped behind enemy lines. I love you, bro. Love you too, bro. All right, Kwame. Again, thank you so much for your time. But I definitely want to... Um, 
give one more last word to you, um, uh, just on whatever it is that you would uh, like to, um, you know, speak on or, uh, you know, dig a little deeper on. Yeah, I would like to use this last uh, time to introduce the people to the Prison Life Matter political line and the work that we're doing right now to use Prison Life Matter as a united front for the overall prison movement. Um, prison Life Matter is a united front that consists of political prisoners, prisoners of war, and other prison abolitionist formations both inside and outside. And in 2017, I established the Prison Life Matter National Coordinating Committee, which consists of several leading political prisoners around the nation of coming together so that we can put together a national strategy and create the infrastructure that's needed to move the prison movement forward. Because right now, what we have that we didn't have maybe in the 70s, 80s, 90s, or even in the past five, 10 years, is that almost every individual that's in leadership behind the wall, as well as on the street, is in communication. Or one of the people that we're in contact with is in tune with another leader within the movement. And the same thing with the New African Independence Movement as the prison movement is that there's a disarray. We're all fighting for the same thing. We're all trying to achieve the same goals. But when there's no national strategy, it reduces our own power. So with Prison Life Matter, we're trying to unite everybody and put this national coordinating committee not only behind the walls but on the streets so that every political prisoner or prison formation behind the wall they can have their outside contact and resources put into a national structure so that everybody's on one accord. And the next step to the NCC is establishing these regional organizing committees. So right now, whoever we have on the NCC, if you're in Texas or California or Virginia or New York and you're behind the wall, it's your job as a Prison Life Matter field marshal political education classes into your camp and reach out to the other prisons within that state and appoint prison life matter field marshals. And then that will translate to the outside support groups and bring them on board so that we can also have political education classes and cadre development on the outside because a lot of these prison support groups they don't know how to do work that directly aligns with the inside because anybody within the prison movement has to understand that the work has to come from the inside out. It's always been that way. We can have all the support on the outside, but it has to start on the inside. So with Prison Life Matter and groups like Idea, You have one minute remaining. We're hoping that we can bring everything together and show these outside support groups how to move beyond just the phone calls or the emails or putting boots on the ground outside of the camps and headquarters to really amplify the voices of the prison movement so that we can have a concrete strategy and tactic moving forward. All right. You have been listening to our conversation with Kwame Shakur. If you would like to write to him, you can write to him at Michael Joyner. That's J-O-Y-N, like new, E-R. His number is 149-677. He is at F like freedom, C like Congo, F like freedom, 4490 West Reformatory Road, Pendleton, Indiana, 46064. Um, I do want to mention a couple of things that he talked about. Educate, agitate, organize. We can't do this work out here without the leadership coming from the inside. Uh, One last piece of news also that I would like to say is that Jalil Mutakim is in fact home, finally, and he is taking some quiet time out to um, connect with his family and friends. Welcome home, Jalil Muntakim.
Yes, that was Kwame Shakur doing his reality or gangster rap. And if you, and you probably recognized his voice. And speaking of inside leadership, I am going to read an article um, by organizers on the inside to vote no on Proposition 20. This is by Firm, which is Providing Helpful, Effective Results and Management. Police, prison guards, and their unions and affiliates are at it again. They're hoping to scare the public, you, into voting yes on an initiative that will significantly increase prison populations throughout California, scaling back years of hard-fought reform measures like Propositions 36, 47, and 57 that had reduced overcrowding and directed taxpayer monies to health care, education, and the communities, and put those funds right back into their pockets. They've always been comfortable utilizing scare tactics, and it has been relatively effective. This time, however, they've included additional tactics in an attempt to screw the people. One, sleight of hand. Two, you don't know what you want. And three, silence. Sleight of hand. California lawmakers seek to expand California's DNA collection program. They want those arrested for misdemeanor offenses to be required to provide their DNA. People arrested for felonies, including those confined in state and local jails, are already required to provide their DNA. Why then is the DNA expansion policy being presented to the public under Proposition 20? Simply put, to fool you. They want you to believe that by violating people's right to privacy by requiring them to provide DNA samples every time they encounter a police officer is somehow going to make us safer. It's not. It's a lie. It's also oppressive. You don't know what you want. During the last decade, the people of California have proactively scaled back draconian sentencing laws. Proposition 36 permitted resentencing of prisoners sentenced to life in prisons for offenses that were neither serious or violent. Proposition 47 authorizes judges to reduce nonviolent offenses like simple drug possession or theft-related offenses that did not exceed $950 to be treated as misdemeanors. Proposition 57 mandated increased credit earning for prisoners, excluding condemned prisoners or prisoners sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. Prisoners are also eligible for early parole after serving the full term of their primary offense if they were not convicted of a violent offense. It also amended the California Constitution by adding sections 32A1 and 32A1A to Article 1, Declaration of Rights. These initiatives were instrumental in reducing the prison populations that resulted in significant savings. Certain special groups, however, feel you don't know what you want. Apparently, the people of California simply did not know what they were doing when they approved said propositions, amended the Constitution, or demanded that nonviolent prisoners be released early, diverting their tax dollars to the educational and healthcare sectors. These very same groups feel you must now be tricked into funneling billions of dollars back into the prison system. Not education, not rehabilitative programs, not health care, not homelessness, but prisons and prison guard salaries because, after all, that's what's best for you. Everybody wants cold cases to be solved, and DNA evidence is a wonderful tool not only to link bad actors to past crimes, but also to, to exonerate those wrongly convicted. But again... Those convicted of felonies, including those housed in state prisons, are already required to provide their DNA. Expansion of the DNA collection program to involve people arrested for mere misdemeanor infractions is outrageous and, overre and overreaching. Silence. The special interest groups are hoping the lack of attention on Proposition 20 aids them in destroying all we've worked for. And if we are not vigilant, it will. Although the prison population had been reduced, there are thousands of brothers and sisters, black and brown, currently incarcerated for nonviolent offenses. In fact, the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, CDCR, has refused to begin paroling nonviolent prisoners sentenced under the three strikes law pursuant to Proposition 57 until after November 3rd. They want to see if their trick is successful. Many of the men sentenced under the three strikes law have been incarcerated and away from their families for 25 plus years. Family members had passed away, abandoned them, or otherwise lost all contact with them. 
These brothers and sisters are good people and alone, but their lives have been completely snuffed out, all for the sake of job security for prison guards. For example, the men indicated below have never been accused, arrested, charged, or convicted for murder, rape, any sex-related offense, arson, great bodily injury to another, physically injuring another, or any other heinous offense, but have been sentenced as though they killed someone. William Milton, P38650. He's at CTF, P.O. Box 689, Soledad, California, 93960-0689, was sentenced to 30 years to life in prison for allegedly taking a 20 bill from a man's pocket in 1998, a violation of Penal Code 212.5C, robbery. The state also accused Milton of committing two Illinois robberies in 1987. The court found aggravating facts in Milton's priors and determined them to be serious felonies for purposes of the three strikes law. After years of challenges and rulings by the United States Supreme Court, the second appellate district determined that Milton's priors were not serious or violent, but declined to grant Milton relief because it would be, quote, too disruptive, unquote, i.e., quote, granting Milton's petition would make thousands of cases vulnerable to attack, unquote. See in Re William Milton, 2019, 42cal.app.5977-256cal.rptr.3d172. In other words, Thousands of unconstitutional convictions and sentences will stand because correcting Milton's sentence will disrupt job security for prison guards and other state actors. Milton is literally serving a sentence the state can no longer impose upon him today. The California Supreme Court granted review in S259954. A final decision is due by early 2021. Corey Lamar Smith, G44282, also at CTF, P.O. Box 689, Soledad, California, 93960-0689, was sentenced to 27 years to life under the three strikes law for a daytime burglary. Smith wandered into an unlocked home under the influence and disoriented. Even the homeowner testified Smith was harmless and did not pose a threat to her. But because Smith has two felonies on his record, he was sentenced to life. There are many more instances like this. These brothers are not violent and had paid their debts to society tenfold, right to the, to the aforementioned brothers or any other nonviolent three-striker. You'll see they aren't the hardened criminals those special interest groups made them out to be. They need your help. We humbly ask the people to make their voices heard once more. Please vote no on Proposition 20. Firm, which is P-H-E-R-M, is an organization of prisoners at the California Training Facility, CTF at Soledad. To reach them, email editor at sfbayview.com. Where this article comes from, I hope you are inspired by what you've just heard. I mean, these people inside are just so engaged uh, against all odds, using the tools they have available to them. Our comrades inside are continuing to agitate, organize, educate, especially around voting. They are telling us what they need from our vote. Please, um, again, if you are not feeling it around voting, please vote for those that have been denied their human and civil rights due to modern-day slavery taking place within our prisons. And I want to encourage you to vote uh, for Proposition 17 as well, that will give the right to vote back to people who are on parole and probation. All right. With that said, I also want to tell you that Liberate the Cage Voices has launched a social media campaign. We are starting with Leonard Alexander. That is the slave name of Yafeo Ayapo. And uh, please go to either you can go to the California Prison Focus uh, social media platforms or the San Francisco Bayview's social media platforms and find the campaign there. You will see a poster. We are starting with Leonard Alexander. 
Um, and you will see his age is 64. He has been caged for 46 years. He has spent 31 years in solitary confinement and denied parole 17 times, equaling a civil death. And uh, now, of course, because he is, is an elder, he is the potential of a death sentence by COVID-19. If you'd like to help stop this genocidal injustice and uh, paying $81,000 a year in your tax dollars for it, then please join us in calling the governor using the information that's on that poster to ask for their release. All right, let's get ready for our weekly prison focus mailbox number 18. Ken reports on conditions at Ironwood State Prison, including the staff's utter disregard for people's health, safety, or well-being. Uh, create situations where um, mass incarceration becomes even more entrenched. politically despised and those tortured and left for dead. Ironwood State Prison, August 23rd, 2020. Dear California Prison Focus, a friend happened to give me your number 60 special COVID-19 edition of Prison Focus, which has been helpful for appeals. Your paper has good information. Good job to you guys. Ralph Diaz's statement is a sham. I'm a level two inmate, came across the street from Chuck Walla due to COVID-19. This place, ISP, is horrible. No scrub pads, no liquid soap, no social distance to chow hall. Two to a table. COs do not wear face masks in chow hall. They put their feet on the stools, butts on the table, and don't ever clean the rec equipment. I hand sanitize on the whole yard. Laundry exchange is once a week. I'm locked in a 90-degree cell for about 72 hours a shot, and they're always threatening to take away programming. I've put on 14 pounds since I've been here. 23 people just tested positive in my building and were shipped to Sea Yard. All filed grievances already. This place is corrupt, crooked, irresponsible. Bottom line, CDCR does not do what they are told to do by World Health Organization and Center for Disease Control. I'm going to contact Newsom because these people are trying to get us sick. I have more complaints I'm going to file. No cold water while it's 120 degrees outside. I could go on. I'm a little over a year and a half away to my next board parole hearing for attempted murder. My celly is a double LWAP and 40 to life, and he didn't kill anybody. I got a five-year denial my initial hearing. All they want to do is lock us up, kick back, and make easy money. They don't care about our health. If you have questions, send them, and I'll respond. Any advice you can give me will be appreciated. Also, how many stamps do I need to send for issue 54, which has critical information for the Board of Parole hearings? Thank you for your time and help. Respectfully. California Prison Focus is a small community-based organization that works with and on behalf of California prisoners before, during, and after COVID-19. We have vowed to investigate and expose human rights abuses within California prison through widespread dissemination of our quarterly prison reports. We are asking both the inside and outside artivists to get involved with the agreement to come home, which you can learn more about on our website, prisons.org. 
our primary resources rely entirely upon donations and subscriptions of our prison-focused newspaper, which is published every three to four months. This includes our new zine, Uncaged Slave, 24 hours ago. We welcome you to get involved with our various platforms. Why? Because together, as one voice, we say liberate our caged brothers and sisters. Freeing one is freeing community to end all hostilities. So remember, in these times, when the times are hard, we depends on the community. Go to prisons.org and donate now, today. Thank you. All right. Thank you to Minister King. He is the co-director of California Prison Focus. Um, also, we are in the middle of a fun drive for KPOO. So please, people, do what you can to dig deep. This station um, is so important to uh, this community. And I have to say, just for me personally, and for those of us that are in this work for prisoners' human rights, this station is invaluable and crucial. I don't know of any other station that has one hour dedicated to prisoner issues and prison issues solely. So thank you, thank you so much, KPOO. People that are listening, tell your friends and family um, and loved ones that uh, we want to keep this radio station alive. It's been going for over 40 years as it is, so keep it coming. It is a community-based uh, and community-run, Black-owned uh, radio station. So please keep it coming. Dig deep. Dig as, as, as deep as you can, whatever that looks like in your life. But we need it coming. KPOO is raising funds. This is their fall fund drive. We want to raise $75,000 by the end of the year, and we can only do it with you. Again, thank you, KPOO, for uh, creating and giving space to this hour for Prison Focus Radio. This is the end of our show, so please get ready for Workweek with Steve Seltzer. Mm-hmm.